Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. It is a precious gift from you, and we can never be thankful enough that you have given it to us, that you gave your word to godly men through the ages, and that they then wrote it down, and then it was preserved through the centuries so that we have it here today before us. What an incredible thought to think that the God who transcends everything would give his words, would speak to sinful creatures like us. Lord, it is such a privilege to have it. And Lord, we pray that you may help us not just to have it and to revere it, but help us to read it here this morning and understand what it says so that we may profit from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, falling over is an unpleasant experience for everyone. When we start out young, we fall over a lot, which is what I witness at the moment with Joshua. It doesn't take much to trip him up. Even this morning, I swung uh, my pants at him as I was walking to the shower, and I swung out towards him, and he went, whoa, uh, and he didn't fall over, but I just had to make a mental note to myself, remember that it doesn't take much for him to fall down. And we all did that when we were little. We were all trying to gain our balance. And then we get over it. We start to acquire a fairly good balance in life and we don't fall over as much. Although some of us do tend to still be a bit of a klutz and trip on things and it doesn't take much to make us uh, go down. But then towards the end of the life, our lives, we do start to really fear falling over again. It starts to become something that is uh, more common as we start to get older. Our bodies don't have the balance that they used to have. And when we fall, it becomes very serious. Uh, Joshua, at the moment, when he falls, he pretty much falls on his nappy. And so it's got a good bit of cushioning there. But when we're older and we fall... Uh, it can be quite serious. And when I was studying at university doing podiatry, we had a whole uh, section on falls prevention and making sure that people are um, giving instructions to the elderly as to how they can be uh, better equipped in the home and what sort of footwear they can be wearing so that they won't fall over as much and so that uh, they won't give themselves serious injuries because um, you can get a fractured hip or um, even if you um, there's good data on if you have a long lie after a fall, you fall down and you can't get to the phone and you lie for a long uh, period, uh, it's associated with a greater increase in mortality. People actually die from just falling over, tripping over the cat, tripping over a piece of carpet, and they end up dying as a result. Falls are an unpleasant experience for all of us, uh, particularly when we get to that later stage in life. But the Bible speaks of one particular fall, and that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at how people trip and fall on Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at people how, how people build on Jesus as a rock. He is a rock upon which they build uh, their lives. This week I want to look at what Peter has to say about people who do not build themselves upon Jesus Christ, what happens to them. And he tells us in the verses that, was read, that were read to us just before, in verses 7 and 8. They're the two verses that we're looking at this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, found on page 1201 in the Black Church Bibles. Page 1201, verses 7 and 8 read, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble 
and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. People trip on Jesus as a rock, and they don't just trip. They end up not recovering their balance. They end up falling hard upon him. They don't fall on some sort of nice soft grass. Instead, they fall on Jesus as the rock, and they hurt themselves quite badly. And that's what I want to look at this morning, as people trip and fall on Jesus Christ as the rock. And I want to look at it by asking three questions, uh, by looking at the answers to one question of why people trip and fall upon Jesus. And I think we're given three answers as to why in the text. The first reason why people stumble and fall on Jesus is because people stumble on Jesus because they do not believe. They do not believe. There is nothing in Jesus Christ that should make men stumble in, him, in himself. The reason people stumble is because of them, because of their own unbelief, because of their own sinfulness that blinds them and makes them not want to believe in Jesus at all. Why don't people believe in Jesus? What, what is it about him that they find difficult to believe? Why does their sinfulness uh, infect them so they don't trust in Jesus? Well, there's many things that people don't like about Jesus. One of the big things is that Jesus claims to be God. His claim to divinity is something they don't like. The fact that God, in all his holiness, all his glory, all his power, would come and dwell on earth as a human being, they just don't like the sound of that. Their sinful mind says, no, that can't be true, that can't be possible. God wouldn't do that. My conception of the God who made everything would not let that happen. And so they stumble upon that fact about Jesus. The other thing that people stumble on, the almost opposite of that, is that Jesus is man. They may have no problems with the fact that Jesus is God, but when it comes to Jesus is also 100% man, they have a problem with that particularly the, the way that he is portrayed in the scriptures, starting with his birth. The fact that God would come and dwell as a man who was born in a stable amongst animals to very poor parents, how is that possible? And then as he grows up, he doesn't go off and dwell in king's palaces. Instead, he gathers with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes he doesn't go and be with the, the upper class and the nice people in society and enjoy the pleasures of this life. Instead, he goes with the riffraff and he experiences hardship and suffering. And they don't think that that means that he could have truly been a man. And then they look at the way he suffered and died and they say, if he was God, that wouldn't have happened to him either. And so they stumble on the fact that he was human and that he died a human, painful death. So instead they say, oh, he, that may have been God for part of it, but when he went to the cross, the divinity left Jesus. There's no way God could have suffered there. And so they doubt his humanity. But the other things that people find difficult about Jesus is, of course, his righteous life. That this man who claims to be God and claims to be a man calls himself Jesus, he surely didn't live a life without sin at all. And if they do accept that he lived a life without sin, they really don't like hearing about his standards of living, 
what he says in the Sermon on the Mount about how we should live, they stumble at that and say, no, he wasn't realistic about what we can do with our lives. And so they stumble at his teachings and about his righteous life because it makes them look bad because they realise their own sinfulness. And the other thing that people often stumble about with Jesus Christ, and particularly in our day and age, is that he claims to be the only way to heaven. That that means that those who don't believe in Jesus don't go to paradise, they aren't acceptable before God. They say, surely that's not true. That teaching of Jesus can't be right. If I'm a faithful Buddhist, or if I'm a faithful Hindu, or if I'm a faithful Muslim, or if I'm just a good person and give nicely to charity on a fairly regular basis, that's got to be good enough to get me into heaven. As long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, I'll be all right. And so they stumble at Jesus' teaching that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so they don't believe in Jesus because they stumble at these points. So that's one reason why people don't uh, why people stumble with Jesus is because they don't believe in him. And then we get a second reason, which is really the reason behind the unbelief. And that's my second main point this morning. People do not believe because they do not obey the message. The reason people stumble is because they do not believe. The reason people do not believe is because they do not obey the message. That's what it says there in verse, in verse 7. And then verse 8. So verse 7 says, Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So we see there that the reason people fall on him is because they do not believe. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message. The reason they don't believe is because they don't believe the message. What is the message? Well, it's the gospel. It's what we read in the Bible about Jesus Christ. Now, the way the NIV has translated there uh, may not be the best way. Um, the, the word message there is just a translation of the word logos, which is usually the, the Greek word for word. And so the NIV translations just narrowed it down to the gospel message, but most translations, English translations will actually use the word word there. So it's basically the whole of the Bible would be one way of looking at why people don't believe. They don't believe because they disobey the Bible. They disobey the word. And that makes sense. To not believe in Jesus means you have to find out about Jesus first of all. And so that means they've got some contact with the Bible as we have it. And so to not believe in Jesus means they haven't obeyed the Bible. They haven't accepted it. Another way of translating the word obey would be they're unpersuaded or they've rejected the Bible. And that's why they're stumbling. They don't believe, they stumble because they don't believe it because they have disobeyed the Bible. They've rejected it. And so people we see do this all the time. They don't believe in Jesus because they have a problem with the Bible. They have some excuse about the Bible that says Jesus, as he is portrayed there, isn't true at all, and I'm not believing in him. And so they come up with all kinds of excuses. That may mean uh, internal contradictions that are seen in the Bible, that there's errors there in the way that the Bible speaks itself, that there's a conflict between one author and another author, 
So when they see that one author in the gospel says that two angels were present and the other author says one angel was present, they go, oh, contradiction there. Or another example is in the gospels is that they say there's two men, like two men, blind men calling out and only one man, the other gospel says, is there. Or they look at something like uh, Judas and they say his death, he hung himself, but then in Acts it says he fell and his guts basically scattered across the ground. They say there's some sort of contradiction there. What they don't look at is whether there's any reasonable explanation as to why those things are there. That one author is consistently always saying there's two people and one author is always consistently saying there's one person and it's a one way of, of telling a story is to always give the dominant speaker the, the only position in the, in the story. And so when one blind man calls out or one man comes out of the tomb or one angel is there, usually uh, that's the one that's talked about because that was the one that spoke clearly, whereas the other author is consistent in saying, yes, there were two people, but one person uh, was the one that spoke. And when it comes to Judas... Isn't it possible that he hung himself and then the rope broke and he fell on the ground and his insides came out? It's quite reasonable, quite possible explanation. But people look at those things and they go, oh, internal contradiction there. I can't believe the Bible. I have to reject it. And that means then I can't believe in Jesus. Or they look at, they, they may not look for errors within the Bible. They may look for errors outside the Bible, by the way that the Bible interacts with things outside the Bible, external contradictions. So this is where archaeology comes into play. So they look at what the Bible says and then they look at what archaeology says and they say, oh, the dates are wrong, not possible. We look at when uh, this city was burned down and the Bible says that it must be this date, but we look at uh, carbon dating of this and it seems to be that it's not possible at all as though somehow they have the authority to say that anything they dig up comes with some sort of date stamped on it that tells them exactly when things were. And archaeology is always changing. Now, I remember reading one archaeological textbook and it said the archaeology of today becomes the footnotes of, t- of tomorrow's archaeology textbooks because they get more and more evidence and they say, oh, yes, actually, the Bible was right all along. And that happens again and again. But they may say, oh, it's not archaeology that I've got a problem with the Bible. It's different theories, like the theory of evolution. It can't be that God created the world in six days. That's not possible. And so their theory outside the Bible conflicts there, as though the theory of evolution is a fact of evolution, not a theory at all. And so they say, oh, I can't believe in Jesus because there's an external contradiction with the theory of evolution. When it's quite clear that evolution is not done and dusted. It's not a clear fact at all and there's quite a strong movement in the United States uh, contradicting the theories of evolution all the time. Or it may be something like miracles in the Bible conflicts with the way that they see life, that things don't happen. People don't come back to life. People don't get miraculously healed. Water doesn't just suddenly stop flowing so that people can cross the Red Sea or the Jordan River. And so they say, that's not my experience, so the Bible must be wrong. And then for Jesus, I can't believe in him. But it's a miracle is a miracle because it's a miracle. Just because you don't see it. If you saw people come back to life every day, then they wouldn't be miracles. 
If you saw rivers stop miraculously every day, well, then they wouldn't be miracles either. And so some people say, I don't believe the Bible because of the miracles. But other people say, I believe the Bible because of the miracles. That there were signs and wonders at the time Jesus was in the world to show that he was the Christ. He was God himself. He was the one that was promised to come. He is it. And so they believe because of the miracles, not in spite of the miracles. So people use many excuses as to why they can reject the Bible and therefore disbelieve in Jesus Christ. But none of, their, none of those reasons are good reasons. They're just excuses to get out of the fact of having to look at the Bible and take it for what it presents and then realise that they must believe in Jesus Christ. So we've seen why people stumble is because they disbelieve and we've seen that why people disbelieve is because they reject the word. Is there any deeper reason as to why people stumble? And I think Peter gives us a third reason. A third reason why people disbelieve, then why people reject the word. What comes first? What's really behind everything? And that's given to us in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. People do not obey the message because that's what they were destined to do. That's what they were destined for. This part of scripture concerns that doctrine of predestination. That God predestines some for eternal life and he predestines others for eternal damnation and destruction in hell. And it's the same word that's used here for destined, uh, which is also what they were destined for, talking of those who are unbelievers. That same word is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to speak of those who are going to eternal life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, page 1171, 1171, in your black church pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word appoint in verse 9, exactly the same word that's translated as destined over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. God has appointed some for eternal life and he's also appointed some for eternal destruction in hell. Now, you may not like this doctrine at all. And I think particularly the part that says that some are eternally appointed for destruction in, in hell makes all of us feel uncomfortable because we know many people in this life who we love dearly, who aren't Christians, and we wonder whether God would have eternally appointed them for destruction in hell. And so we don't like it. And some even object. They don't go from just disliking this doctrine to to rejecting it altogether. They object to it. They say, well, if this is true, then it excludes the responsibility of man. It says that God has already decided where everyone's going to go. And so there's no responsibility on our part as to our own sin and our own unbelief. We're either appointed to believe or appointed to disbelieve, so there's no responsibility given to us at all. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible clearly states again and again that man is responsible for his unbelief. 
and man is responsible for his belief. It may be that God has predestined us all, but it's up to us. We are responsible if we don't if we don't believe in Jesus. The Bible is quite clear on that. The other objection is that it makes God the author of sin. That he is the one who, who, uh, who brings sin into this world because he's in control of everyone. But the Bible never says that either. It says that God is in complete control, but he is light, and in him there is no darkness. And so we cannot attribute sin to him in any way, shape, or form. We cannot attribute our unbelief to him and put the responsibility back on him. So in the end, when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, you either accept your own experience and conceptions as to what God should and shouldn't do, or you accept what the Bible says and you're obedient to the word as it presents God and as it presents man and his responsibility. But then you ask, well, if this is true, why would God tell us about predestination? Why would he tell us about the fact that some people are predestined for eternal life and some people are predestined for eternal destruction, surely this is a difficulty that even if he's done it, he should have kept out of the Bible because it's going to frustrate a large number of people and make them uncomfortable and give them an excuse not to believe. Why would he do it? Why would he tell us? Well, I think he tells us about being predestined to eternal life for a couple of reasons. One is to humble us by the fact that we don't know everything. It does conflict in your mind to think that God is completely sovereign and yet man is responsible. It's a complete contradiction in human heads, I'll admit it. But that just shows that our brains are finite and if God is truly wiser than us, he can make it fit together in some way we can't understand. And so it humbles us, it puts us back in our place. We start to think, oh, I know everything. But no. You don't know everything. And this is one area in God's word that just makes you go, this is a mystery. I can gaze at it from a distance, but I have to respect that it is God's mystery. And he can fit it together, but my little brain cannot do it. And it also humbles us in the fact that we know that when we become a Christian, it's not of us. It's all of grace. It's all of God. We may think we were the ones that were clever enough to repent and believe and serve him with our lives, but in the end we realize it's all because God was kind enough and gracious enough to choose us to be his people. He could have passed over you and gone to the next person. There was nothing in you that made him stop at you and make you one of his people. And that is a truly humbling thing. We like to elevate ourselves in our pride and think, I'm such a clever person for being a Christian. But no, you're not. It's that God is so merciful to you in bringing you to Christ. It humbles you to know of the doctrine of predestination and puts you back in your place that you should be down on your knees thanking God every day that he brought you to life and didn't pass over you and go to the next person instead. And the other thing that it does by knowing about this doctrine is it encourages you. You're safe in God's hands. He's in control of everything. He's in control of the idiot neighbour next door. He's in control of the person at work who really hates you. 
He's in control of everything. And he's promised that if you believe in him, you will persevere to the end. He will keep you safe. And so there's nothing that can snatch you out of God's hand. He destined you before the creation of the world, and he's still got you destined for paradise. It's such an encouragement to know that God destined you for eternal life and that you will be with him by hook or by crook. God will make sure of it. He is a powerful God and there is no one that is more powerful than him and can somehow snatch you away. No, you are safe because God is in control of everyone's destiny. But what about the eternal damnation part? Why would God tell us about that? Yes, tell us about the eternal destination of those who believe and go to eternal life. But surely he should leave this bit out. Yes, that other part, it humbles us and encourages us. But why would he tell us that he's eternally damned some people? Well, I think Peter tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, about people being destined for unbelief, destined for disobedience to the word, and destined to stumble and fall to encourage us that unbelievers are not some sort of evidence as though God's not in control, that God is failing. Because when we do our best to witness to others we, and we see no results, we start to think, is God really in control? Is God really able to make what I say have an effect on other people? And we start to wonder about whether... We're doing it right, and whether God's really in power at all, whether we're onto the right thing. But when we know that God has everybody in his hands, not just Christians but also non-Christians, we're encouraged that when we don't see people believe, that God's plans are still happening. God planned that that person wouldn't believe. He's still in control. It's not so as though somehow he is failing in some way. The unbelief that you see in those people is predicted and planned by God. And you should try all you can to win people to God, win people to Christ, share with them, witness to them, but in the end you leave it in God's hands. And when you don't see any fruit, remember it's not as though God is failing. He's destined for there to be no fruit in that particular instance. And you just need to leave it with God. Pray about it to God, but leave it with God. He is not failing when you don't see any fruit in your labours. He is always succeeding. He is always a success. His plans always work out just exactly as he wants them to, even when people don't believe. But I also want to state clearly that what this doctrine doesn't teach. I've said that it is there for us to encourage us, to humble us, but it doesn't give you an excuse not to believe. I want to make that very clear. What does 1 Peter 2 say about why people stumble and fall? It's quite clear to him, to Peter, the reasons people don't, uh, why people stumble and fall is because they don't believe, verse 7. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they disobey the message. It's all responsibility is all upon you. If you don't believe, it's your fault. If you don't obey the word, it's your fault. 
You have a responsibility to do it. Yes, he does say that they're all destined, but the responsibility is still upon you. Don't use the doctrine as an excuse. So we see from this passage, and last week's that we looked at, that Jesus is either beneficial to some, in that they build upon him and go up, but to others, he's harmful to them, and they go down. They trip and they stumble and they fall upon him. Everyone either builds upon Jesus or they fall upon Jesus. There's no in-betweens. You either trip on him or you build upon him. And this shows, Peter is showing quite clearly here, that Jesus is completely central. Everything in your life depends upon what you do with Jesus. And when you toy with the unbelief in Jesus... Unbelief about his divinity, his humanity, his substitutionary atonement, you are toying very dangerously. If you are not believing in him, you're tripping on him instead. You can either accept him as he is contained in the word and build upon him, or you can trip on him and not believe in him and his death for you. If that is you, you are tripping on him, you haven't believed in Jesus, you haven't obeyed the word, then I want to be clear with you that you're tripping right now and the fall will certainly come. The fall hasn't come yet. You haven't died. You're still alive right now. The fall will come. It may take 70, 80 years before the fall comes, but everyone dies. The death rate is still one to one. You will die. You will fall. And you will be destroyed. That fall will also be very bad. I want to make that clear to you. If you're tripping on Jesus now, you're not believing in him, that fall will be bad. Think of when you trip in your life at the moment, in this world. There's a bit of pavement. You walk down Lyons Road, it's pretty shoddy there. You can um, trip on a, a bit of pavement. You fall down, it hurts. You get a scraped knee, you get embarrassment, particularly a busy road like that. Lots of cars going past. It's very embarrassing to trip, particularly as an adult. If you trip and fall there, it's not that bad. But the tripping on Jesus is a lot, lot worse. It's the worst fall of all. It is a fall that is more than a scraped knee or a fractured hip. It is a fall that involves the burning fires of hell for eternity because you tripped on Jesus. And that fall goes on and on. There's no hospitals in heaven to mend your fractured hip. I mean, in hell, to mend your fractured hip. You can't recover from that fall and get up and go about your business. No, it's a fall you don't recover from. It's a terrible fall. Don't trip on Jesus. I beg of you, don't trip on him today. You may have tripped on him in the past in unbelief and disobedience to the word, but while you're alive, you can still recover and build upon him instead. Today you can. Tomorrow you may not. Tomorrow you may be in hell and not able to recover from the fall at all. If you've tripped on him in the past, make sure you build upon him today. I beg of you, do that. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus now and begin to live according to his laws. Live a life of goodness and truth instead of a life of evil and badness. Do that today. Don't fall on Jesus. Don't trip on him.
Instead, build upon him. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came into this world in the way that he did and that he has revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. Lord, help us to build upon him, not reject the capstone, the foundation stone, but to put our feet firmly upon him and ground ourselves in repentance and faith in him, O Lord. Lord, we do pray for anyone here this morning who has tripped upon Jesus in the past, who has not believed in him, who has not been obedient to the word. Lord, help them to realise what they're doing, that they are in the midst of a fall, a terrible fall, that will never end. Lord, awaken them to yourself this morning. Help them to put away any excuses they may have for not believing in Jesus and not believing his word and realise that he is truly the Son of God. He really is God himself and he is the only way to eternal life. Lord, help us as believers here to encourage such people to not trip and may you encourage us that we are safe in your hands because we have been destined for eternal life. And help us in our evangelism to remember that you are in control of the growth. We scatter the seed, but you are in control. Lord, help us to pray for those we are sharing the gospel with. And may we see fruit from our labours, that you may, in your mercy, deem growth from what we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.